What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. Today, we have Mike Cantrell coming on, and we had a really great chat about some of these more advanced concepts as it relates to, you know, postural restoration concepts, uh, asymmetry, and it's a little bit more of an advanced chat, so uh, this will make a lot of sense to some people who have some experience with the concepts that I discuss uh, within some of my videos, and if you've ever taken a PRI course, this will start to make a lot of sense to you. But if it goes over your head a little bit, then that's probably very normal for a lot of people. Uh, Just know that uh, Mike's course, my course, they complement each other very well. Um, And I think that if you're looking to get more of a deeper dive into these concepts, then that would be a really good place to look into because I really admire uh, what Mike and James Anderson put together with their course. It was phenomenal and we'll get into my experience with it and kind of what I got out of it and how it can be more applicable for people that aren't necessarily just only physical therapists or manual therapists but also personal trainers. So I hope you guys enjoy and I will see you on the next one. Where should we begin? Should we begin like, you know, they're going to say, well, begin at the beginning. Yeah, but I, mean, sure, I guess where's the beginning, you know, probably, um, I guess, uh, I guess James and I, you know, as we had, you know, I, I met James back when, um, before PRI existed as a, as a, as a big, as anything, it wasn't an institute, there was no PRI. So the institute didn't exist, and we were taking classes and you know learning about the science of asymmetry. What year was this? This was late '90s, gotcha. so '97, '98, '99, in that time frame. And then we started uh, teaching about the use of a device called a protonic system. Mm. Well, this protonic system was developed by Ron Haruska, who um, who had. Uh, um, was marketing it through a company that he created called Inverse Technologies. And um, <clears throat> he and a couple of other guys founded this company, and it was through Inverse Technologies that the uh, Protonics was developed and then marketed through medical supply companies. So I had taken a few classes from Ron learning how to use this Protonic system. All his classes were centered around the Protonic system. So he was out pushing the system. Mm-hmm. And um, And so we were learning how to use it. And then the medical supply company approached me and approached James. Now, I didn't know James at the time, but they approached us. And separately, I'm in the Southeast. He's in Nebraska. James was living in Nebraska at the time and and said, do you guys want to, you know, teach people how to use this thing? We're like, sure. You know, I mean, I I wasn't great at it, but I, I get, you know how it is, like if you, well, you to know to be able to teach something, you got to be a few chapters ahead of the class at least. So I was a few chapters ahead. So I was like, sure, yeah. I mean, and and James was roughly in the same boat. But anyways, so here's James Anderson in Nebraska teaching for MP. I'm down in Georgia teaching for MP, and we taught several classes. And then uh, as the protonic system faded, and as inverse technologies faded, um, the the concept of human asymmetry was growing. And it became bigger than a protonic system. And um, and then the the idea of, you know, well, hey, maybe there's a rib cage and a diaphragm that plays a role in this, and it needs to be that's as big or bigger than this pelvis knee thing. And um, and so the classes became sharply modified and more intense and 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 uh, maybe less intense because at first it was everything in one weekend, you know head to toe and then and then it became more divided out into segments 
then um, as then the institute was formed and James certified in 04. I was building a clinic, so I certified in 06. And then he was teaching and then I was teaching now for the institute. So it was Ron and James and I. And we did this for a long time. And then around 2015, 16, James was developing the affiliate program for, for the institute, for PRI. And, um, and I was um, teaching or starting to teach a class on PRI says, hey, you know, you need a dentist, go get a dentist, which is important. But then once you have the dentist, it's kind of like, okay, now what do I do? So we realized there was a there was a, a lag there. So we said, well, okay, here's what you do. Or, or at least at best, my dentist at the time, Dr. Kehi, and she's still my dentist, Liz Kehi, I work with her all the time. Once a week, I'm with her. I was there wow. yesterday. And um, and so she and I realized, you know, there's a lot of material here that we're learning as we're going, and it's it's not out there in the ether. Mm-hmm. We need to put that out there. So um, we approached PRI about it at first and said this could be an affiliate course. And they were like, nah, nah, you know, do your thing. So we did our thing, and then we started teaching this thing in a lot of places. And um, and I remember Sangini Rain, she's a therapist in North Carolina, and she hosted us first. And um and we taught the class there. It was, a, it was a good success. And basically it was, you know, we called it Intersection of Dentistry and Physical Therapy First Edition. Mm. And then it could have been subtitled like the stuff we learned while working together. Because that's really <laughs> what it was. Yeah, that's good. And um, cool stuff we figured out. And, um, and maybe you want to try it this way too. <laughs> that could have been the second parenthetical phrase underneath it. So we're doing this. And it was pretty cool class. And then, and the reason I'm bringing all that up, because that was around the time that James and I formed this organization, Applied Integration Consulting, because we realized people are taking courses from us, from from the new instructors that are out there now that we spent a lot of time working with them and, you know, getting them up to speed and teach these courses, yada, yada, yada. And that's great. But again, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm the... I'm the person who works with people in the trenches. I've taken the courses, but the application, I still have problems with applying the material across all of these courses. Mm-hmm. So we, we were like, okay, well, we need to, we need to move forward. And, and, and so we moved forward with this organization that says, okay, you've taken all these courses and, and not just in BRI. In, in, in across the board courses, you know, because there's a lot of intersectionality of, of course material, you know, a lot of concentric circles that overlap and it's that segment in the middle, you know, if I'm just Joe Blow and I've taken this and that and the other course, including PRI stuff, I see there's some relationships between, you know, common compensatory patterns and, and DNS and, and everything else on the planet. And so we're, we're saying, okay, great. Um, let's kind of take someone and help them apply that, you know, apply the concepts to a live patient and, um, and then kind of tutorial them on this through the patient, through that, through the engagement with the patient or the client or, or the whoever, because it might be a sports team or, or just anybody. It could be any scenario and and we want to kind of make it fit the scenario. So that was what engendered the formation of Applied Integration Consulting was to help people apply this integrative material. Mm -hmm. And we do it on a consultancy. 
So hence the name. At one point, a long time ago, we we called it advanced integration consulting. I remember then, that. Yeah, but then it you know PRI was like, no, that sounds too much like advanced integration, the course, and we don't want people getting confused. We're like, all right, well, whatever. So we changed it to this. Anyway, so um, so advanced integration consulting drops, and applied integration consulting is 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 born of the ashes of that. And um, and I don't know that it won't change again. Who knows? I don't. Uh, you know, one thing we're not good at is branding. So <laughs> we're the world's worst marketers and we don't know how to brand. So that's what we suck at. And um, but one thing we don't suck at is is helping people like our our sort of our tagline would be simplifying the complex. I mean, let's just yeah. we got to dumb it down to Mike's level. If Mike understands it, I'm a, I think then everybody will understand it because I'm a ditch digger, you know, and I just need to know it at my level. And so I'm, I'm talking to somebody or I'm talking to an instructor of some course and they say does that make sense and I'm like no yeah. <laughs> so, you know I'm, like, I'm that dude I'm that guy in the class you know <laughs> whose hand is always going up there and go oh dear god he's going to ask another question <laughs> but I always like to kid myself and say well secretly they're glad I'm asking For sure. so, I'll, so I'll just ask you know and so that's that's where that that's sort of the the genesis mm-hmm. of our initiations with working with PRI and then going through and advancing that material. And, you know, God knows we wrote a lot of papers and you know what, like what you said a minute ago, like when you do a podcast, a lot of it is just, you know, for our own selfish reasons, right? Hey, people might listen to this, but I'm kind of here for me. And so I would write articles like to clarify a concept, not because I'm going to hand it to somebody, Mm -hmm. but because I kind of don't understand it. Maybe if I write it all down, I can, you know, I'm asking my own questions or I'll get to the end of a sentence and I can't finish it. I realize I don't understand. Yeah. And so I have to go back and dig in and try to figure it out. And maybe there's, maybe there's some damned research article out there somewhere that, that says it, you know, so I'll, I'll figure it out. And I know for a fact, James is the same way. So he's trying to clarify concepts all the time. And, you know, you don't realize it, but you end up writing all these, these silly articles and then, you know, somebody's over your shoulder looking at it going, you, you know, that that has value. We, you know, can we look at it, too? And you're like, really? You like this? And so, you know, so then people start looking at it and they're like, yes, that explains a lot. And I'm like, OK, all right. James is like, well, OK, great. So then that then segued into trying to help people understand even more in depth that which is not taught in the ether by anybody and so that has been our big big focus is taking material that has never been discussed and discussing it now you know it's like saying we're going to talk about really cool calculus but if a person can't add and subtract well then we can't have a conversation about calculus which is why we're always saying go and take courses and get good at this so that you can come and have a chat with us about, you know, more advanced material. And so that's, that's, that's our population who we want to talk to. And then in dentistry, well, you know, you took our, our coursework and, you know, like there was a bunch of dentists sitting in on these classes, you know, and they're like, they're not even laughing at the jokes. They're writing them down. You know, know, when you're sitting here and you have the gallery view, you know how this is. You've taught stuff and you've got a gallery view and you can see everybody on the gallery. They're all going like that. And they're writing it down, hitting it up. And, you know, and you're like, okay, they're into this. And um, and we realize that 
in the in the venue of of dentists good lord they are they're they're all excited about airway and that's all the buzz but they really you know don't understand airway and and they don't understand there's concepts that that you and i get that a dentist doesn't get because it's outside of a mouth but we yeah. know that that it has everything to do with that mouth so it's outside of yours and my license we can't i can't go sticking my head in their mouth mm -hmm. but you know I'll leave that to the lion tamers and dentists. You know, they're the ones that can go put a head in a mouth and start figuring out what it is. But then they realize what they don't know. I was literally having an exchange with a dentist yesterday on my cell phone. And she was like, uh, she was going on about, okay, what do I call this? And and uh, yeah, it's like, here it is. It's like, uh, okay, one person was the girl in the picture Two were the guy in the picture. Seriously, I can't do my exams without looking anymore. I just need your help with verbiage for my notes. Like, what? What's the verbiage for the dude? And 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 what about the girl? And yeah. and so I wrote like a quick blurb, and she goes, "That's it. Awesome. You should see my notes. They look like a damn book." And I'm cracking up. But what I love is that here's a dentist diving head first into this. And she's, you know, what's called a biological dentist. You know, they're very big into orthopedic palatal expanding, but she is going, and, and she's a black belt of that, mm -hmm. but she's, she's starting to become more patient selective, which is all we ever want. It's not that somebody said, well, you're anti-palatal expand. And I said, actually, I'm quite the opposite. I'm very pro-palatal expand for the people who need to be expanded. So what I want to do is make sure that if you have a hundred people, that they can't all need palatal expansion. Mm -hmm. There's a percentage in here who are probably gonna not benefit. And then there's a percentage who might get worse. So heaven forbid, if you have a benefit who, or a group that doesn't benefit because they're gonna be frustrated at the expense and I'm no better and all of the effort and the invasiveness. And then the group, heaven forbid, who gets worse. And I don't know how large those populations are, right? Out of a hundred. But that let's just say it's a third. So that means one third of that population either didn't benefit or got worse. That's scary if you're the if you're the dentist who's suggesting this procedure be done. So now they have a fail safe because right before it was you have this problem, expand your palate. It costs a lot. It's going to be invasive and you might not get better. And it's a possibility you might be worse. Are you ready now? Because in the interest of full disclosure, I mean, informed consent. So now they can go, this is what I think is going on. You might need palatal expansion. But before we go down that road, let's do some conservative management. Because it used to be they would send somebody to a, to a physical therapist. And we're over there cranking on a jaw. And, you know, is your jaw better? You know, and they're going, it's my neck, damn it. And you're like, oh, sorry. And, um, and, and I still can't breathe. And I'm clenching my teeth and blah, blah, blah. I really need a dentist because you don't know what you're doing. And so now we're at least saying, aha, we do have a mechanism. We do know what we're doing because now we've got this outlet. We're understanding the intersection of that dental and body movement uh, category, whatever the word is. For you. Yeah. Um, so I, I go, the way I look at these things and I learn this material, I take it from a couple different schools of thought that relate to these concepts. And one school of thought, I've heard when it comes to the cranial and cervical stuff is some people would say, 
if you need to look at the head and neck, you're not doing a good enough job at the pelvis and the rib cage and those structures. And that's oftentimes the issue, which I don't know if I fully subscribe to that school of thought, because a lot of the times, you know, I've seen a cervical intervention and it's just made all the difference. And Absolutely. So what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I, this is something I've heard multiple times. So, you know, I, First of all, the, let me restate what you just said. So the, 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 the school of thought is if you're having to look at the head and neck, you're not doing a great job down mm -hmm. here. Is that what it says? Well, see, now I would, I, would, I would back off on that. I wouldn't say that. I, first of all, I would say I'm going to look at everything because I haven't ever met a patient who wasn't everything. Like yeah. if a patient just walked in with a leg and there was no body attached, okay, I'll look at just their leg. But as long as they're walking in with a complete body, everything they brought is going to get scrutinized. I'm going to look at everything, and we all should. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think I get what they're what they're driving at. Of course, they'll look at everything, or what they're really yeah, saying yeah. is, yeah. If you're if you're if you're having to look at this, you're not taking care of this. And I, I would I would back off, and I would say sometimes dogs can wag tails. And you heard me say this when I was speaking, I'm sure, but many times tails can wag dogs. I have to figure out who's the dog and who's the tail. What's getting wagged by whom? And, and many times, you know, if we sort of thought of rib cages as the dog and pelvises and necks slash heads as tails, there's potential for this dog to wag either end. And if one end is wagging too much, I need as an examiner to be able to differentiate who's wagging who. And, and once I figure that out, I, I, so I'm not locked into any sort of um, statement like the one that we're talking about. I'm not locked into that. What I'm, what I'm locked into is what's wrong. Now, having said all that, I had a patient just recently who was having some, you know, and she's having a lot of problems with her head and neck. Now, you know, Mr. Cool here thinks he's the greatest therapist on earth. So he begins treating this patient and, you know, he just knows he's going to resolve her problem because he's going to deal with that rib cage, AKA the dog. And then he quickly, I'm, I'm realizing this patient also has a tail that is beginning to wag this dog. So I'm thinking dental intervention, yada, yada, yada. So the patient now is, she's got a splint in her mouth. She's getting good integration. I'm working with her and she's reporting some improvement. And frankly, kind of, I think she was just being nice. Yeah. I don't think she was really improving. She was being, yeah. And she was being really generous and, 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 you know, and you kind of want to go, okay, really? Like really? And um, it's not just you being nice. Right. But anyway, then she also simultaneously had a massage therapist who was working with her. And she said, should I be seeing the massage therapist? I said, absolutely, you know, because the massage therapist can only help and it's not going to hurt me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go for it. The massage therapist finds an area suboccipitally, mm -hmm. spent some time on that area. Patient comes in and says, I feel a thousand times better. Now, skeptical Mike is going, oh, Please, <laughs> you, you, that couldn't possibly have been your repair. No way. And so uh, I, I said, when was it done? Now, Mike is thinking just yesterday or this morning. Right, right. And it was two weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. And now when I'm doing the exercises you have me doing, I can do them a lot better. Oh, really? 
when's the last time you did your exercises? Yesterday. You haven't done anything this morning? No. So I'm going to test her and I'm going to see limitations. Oh, no. She is clean and pure as the driven snow. Mm. And her hope scoring, three out of five, both sides. And I'm like, okay. So now Mr. Genius Mike Cantrell is going, okay, wait a minute. This, this is literally a demonstration of what we're talking about. So here's a patient who benefited from a local treatment in her neck. Well, you and I are out here spending all our time trying to be this holistic, all-encompassing, great therapist. We also better have that other hat on, ready to manage this person's localized singular problem. Yep. And if we oversimplified it, we could say, well, Mr. Smith, I'm giving you all of these exercises and you've got all the appropriate devices on you and in your mouth and yada, yada, yada. I don't understand why you're getting better. It must be your fault. And then Mr. Smith says, well, I mean, I appreciate all the exercises you've got, but you know, I've had this six inch dagger stabbed in my back now for a week. Could that be a problem? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, there are other issues that could be upsetting our apple cart. Maybe we should pause and pull the damn knife out of his back and send him to the hospital and get his collapsed lung sewed up and get him stitched back up and maybe he'll have a better shot at recovery. Is that an oversimplification? I mean, I kind of think it's an oversimplification, but boy, is it pragmatic. I think it makes a lot of sense to be fair and let's, you know, all I want is my eyes wide open. I'm not, and I refuse to be bound down by a limitation or restrictive uh, diagnostic series. In other words, not everybody is one pattern. Right. They can't be. Yes, I think everybody is asymmetric with a propensity to lateralize to the right. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they occupy the right hemisphere well? No. Does it mean they can occupy, it would be better to have them occupy the left? Maybe not. And the minute my eyes are open, it's like my scales fell off my eyes. And I realize, wait a minute, I've been so 2020 eyesighting here that I'm blind. And uh, my vision has become so focused on one pattern that I re that that I wasn't able to see beyond that one pattern and you can't retrofit every human body into one pattern what you know this even with the even with the conversations with the classes we we've been doing that you and I were doing we would have people chiming in going I'm having backwards findings yeah findings that should be x or y and I don't understand it and I've been told by the powers that be that my backwards findings are my fault. My examination skills must be poor. And I'm going, hmm, maybe they're not. Maybe if we took the blinders off and realized that there could be something beyond what we've been discussing and what we've learned for the last 20 years. I want to dig into that pattern. Um, but first, pattern. I want to ask, how do you determine if it's the cervical spine or cranium driving what's happening down below? How do you know if it's that's the dog and the tail is down below? How do you determine what's the tail and what's the dog? Mm -hmm. Part of that is going to be their history. Yeah. For example, I'm on the phone with somebody just recently and he starts going into a lengthy history 
about how when he was, this is a 38 year old, maybe 40 year old guy. Anyway, when he was 14, he had four extractions, tooth extractions done, you know, upper bicuspids, lower premolars taken out, bite brought in because his, he had too many teeth for his mouth, the classic. And he said, ever since that day, I've been in a tailspin. Okay, that's obvious. We probably have to do something with his mouth. And if somebody said, expand his palate, I don't know that I wouldn't argue. You know, let me look at him first because we might be able to do something without expanding it. But, you know, I could see where the argument would be strong to expand it, make room for some space here. Okay, he's obvious. But ones that are less than obvious, if I have zero skills at all, maybe some rudimentary skills in understanding human asymmetry, Okay, I do my exam that I've learned, my good old standard exam. And as I walk through this standard exam, I, I say, okay, I've developed a treatment plan and I'm going to start my rudimentary basic treatment plan. And I notice they're not getting better. Yeah. Okay, now this is where there be begins to be a divergence, right? So, huh, I, they're not getting better with what I'm doing. Now, I either need to call into question my skills. So at that point, maybe I phone a friend, have them look before I run off and say, oh, you need a dentist. Oh, you need an eye doctor. You know, I don't want to just willy nilly. First of all, it's expensive. The yeah. proposition of getting a dentist and an eye doctor involved in all of this, you go from spending hundreds of dollars to spending thousands of dollars. So just for the sake of the patient, and not wanting them to lay out capital reserves that they may or may not have, you yeah. need to be confident that your cash will be well spent, Mr. Jones, because I've determined that I think you need this dentist. So before I do that, I want to make damn sure that I'm right. So, so first thing I might do, especially if I'm starting out, is phone a friend, get someone in. So I might call up Connor and say, hey, can you do me a favor and look at this person you know this stuff, look and help me because I'm not getting this person better. So now you're going to take a look or somebody, or maybe I'm looking. One of us is looking and we say, hmm, no, you don't need a dentist. You know, this person simply isn't, they're struggling, they're working too hard, whatever it may be. And we sort through it and the patient achieves some semblance of quieted system and now they're moving better. Great, they didn't need a dentist. So, it, so you call into question first your skills. Then let's assume that your skills are accurate or you phoned a friend and, and, and the friend validates your accuracy. Now you can start to say, well, if they're not getting better with this, now by process of elimination, perhaps I need to consider a dentist as my, as my surrogate or my partner on this patient. Great. Now, you, now let's move forward in years. So because that's process of elimination. So the frustration of process of elimination is, well, doggone it, they, um, uh, I, I've burned up multiple visits with this patient, and now I'm saying they need somebody else? And the patient's going to look and go, well, why didn't you figure that out before? How come you didn't know this ahead of time? You know, why, why now? And, you know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just now figuring this out. You know, now that can go one of two ways, I suppose. Patients can be frustrated and yada, yada. Or they could be at least thankful that you figured that out. So, but it would be nice to circumvent that and, you know, or at least interrupt it ahead of time and not have to do that. So now it comes back down to listening to that history 
and then coupling it with the exam. And I can tell you, for example, there are some areas where you'll know, um, even on examination. If, for example, you've got two areas of excessive mobility in the same department, for example, a person in their legs can adduct their left leg across midline on the very first time you visit them. Mm. Now, we know, here's what we know. We've always been taught that no one can adduct their left leg across midline. Mm -hmm. That's what we taught. Put a period. No one can unless they're positioned in neutral. But let's amend that now. Let's say here for the record that no one can adduct their left. You'll never see anyone who can adduct their left leg across midline until you do. Because plenty of people can add up their left leg across midline in a non-neutral pelvis. We had two this week. There you go. So they are everywhere. That's not what we were taught. We weren't taught that. You know, a patient can add up across midline with their left leg on day one. They must be neutral. How could they be neutral and walking in going, I have problems? Right. That doesn't make any, the dog won't hunt. So if a patient can add up their left leg across midline on day one, concern yourself because they're probably a neck slash head possible dental. Mm -hmm. so now, simultaneously, what if they also have excessive straight leg raise? Yeah. Now they've got a frontal plane instability and a sagittal plane instability. Ooh, so that pelvis goes anywhere. Huh. I wonder. Yeah, my wonder is going to be accurate, too. I'll bet you money. They've got something going on in the neck and head that probably needs a dentist. How is so that influencing the ability for the left hip to adduct? So what the, think of it the other way around. So it's not the head and neck that's influencing the left hip to adduct. It's the hyper adduction of the left hip that's influencing the head and neck. In this case, the pelvis is creating another tail at the other end of that dog. This dog's got two tails. The pelvis tail is wagging that, the head tail. Because as that femur can cross midline, there is a lateral instability. Sometimes it's called a snapping hip that people are forcing their hip, ball, I should make a left hip, ball and socket going to the left and they're bifurcating some glute medius and they're creating instability in the frontal plane in order to fake shifting into the left hemisphere, which now that instability has to be picked up someplace. Now, if Dr. Heidi Wise, the optometrist was here and she said they've got an excessive straight leg raise, they're a vision patient. She's also gonna add though, I can't work on them until their bite's stable and half the time the bite's not stable. And stable doesn't mean lock them into a splint, it just means get their bite under control and no longer a habitual bite that represents efforts to be stable while my pelvis is not. Here's the easy way to put it. You ever seen people when they walk on a slack line? You ever seen slack line yep. walkers? Yep. Like a tightrope, but they're on a slack line and they're all over the place. Can't you imagine what they're doing with their, with their teeth? Like they're probably clenching their teeth. Yep. They're probably holding their breath and thrusting their tongue. Well, hell, they're on a slack line. I can't blame them. Now, you know, somebody might tell them, the slack line instructor might say, try to relax everything. Kind of go with it because the more noodly they are, the better they can shift and sway and occupy wherever they need to be, which would be really cool. But if they're just jacked in the head and neck, which is extremely typical, yes. it would make sense. 
Well, the same thing holds true on solid ground. If I'm unstable in my pelvis, I'm going to start picking up that stability somewhere. And it's usually going to be in the head and neck and with my eyesight. So now if I've got lateral instability, I can adduct across midline, and I've got an excessive straight leg raise. So now sagittally, I'm in unstable. Well, doggone it, man. That's a lot of instability. Where are you going to make that up? <laughs> Probably in the head and neck. So it's like, you know, the old, remember that, that comedian, you know, you might be a redneck if. Yeah. And he had, you know, like if there's four dogs sleeping under your porch, you know, you're probably a redneck. Or if directions to your house include turn off the paved road, you're probably a redneck. Well, if you have a straight leg raise that's excessive and you can adduct across midline when you ought not be able to adduct, you probably have a neck, head, dental, occlusal, visual problem. Brilliant. That's uh, pretty that's that's yeah, so well explained. That's awesome. And I think that leads into, you know, potentially like how we can see this inverse pattern potentially as well. Can that mm -hmm. be, this is a situation that can tie into that? Yes, because if you think about that, then it suddenly, suddenly suggests that, well, this person has found a way into the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Well, if they had done it well, how about, ooh, back up. Let's say that same person who can add up that left leg across midline. If you sat them on the table in front of you and started looking at how their femurs rotate, uh -huh. well, they rotate in such a way that they're either A, going to rotate limited in a normal pattern, or B, they're going to rotate limited in a backward pattern. Well, huh. Either way, they're not rotating like a neutral pelvis. Because now, in all fairness, let's say they can add up across midline and they rotate symmetrically. Now I'm going to start thinking, well, maybe they are neutral in that pelvis. And what's going on here? I've really got to back up and think, but you're not going to see that. Now, I should never say that, right? I should never say you're not going to see that because here's what's going to happen. Your phone or mine's going to blow up. I've got one like that. I've got one like that. I've got one like that, too. And we're going to have to then look at them and go, what else is cooking? Because there's always multiple tests that'll tell us about status. And if we saw that, we better start looking at the brachial chain because there's going to be something going on there. Now back to the point about this sort of abnormal or broken pattern. So when that person, if you start looking at femoral rotation on this person who can add up across midline and femoral rotation is bass backward, we've learned well, they don't ER their right femur enough, so we need to teach them how to ER their right femur, or they don't IR their left femur enough, teach them how to IR their left femur or stretch out a posterior capsule. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm saying that happens plenty of times. But what if it's backward? What if I see a limitation in IR of the right femur and a limitation in ER of the left femur? Now, I can promise you there are dozens and dozens of people who are going to listen to this and they're going to go, well, hell, I've got plenty of patients like that. Oh, or they're going to go, I've got one like that. I just saw yesterday. Oh, and me too. And I have one too. And I'll tell you, they're going to see a lot of that. The problem is it's not accounted for. Until you start to understand that that person may have taken a portion of themselves, let's say a pelvis, and moved it in a direction, let's say, to the left. But the rest of the system never got that message. The rest of the system is still hanging on to right hemispheric occupation. Well, that's odd. Well, what kind of pattern is that? Broken. 
where's that covered? Exactly. So it's like that is not routinely understood or taught until a guy named James Anderson started listening to people. And he started listening to some examiners who realized very quickly something is awry. Something is wrong. There's a fly in the ointment. And that fly needs to be scrutinized because there's a lot of flies and there's a lot of ointment out there. And doggone it, we need to start plucking these flies out and getting to a point where we understand what's going on with these patients who are so complex. Because the minute we understand that, now, and honestly, this is, I'm interrupting myself, but this is not old news. It's technically not at all. If you have someone who is lost in space, which hemisphere would it make sense to put them in? The one that they most likely can get to. And that would probably be the right. Mm -hmm. That's old news. The real news is how do you determine if they're lost in space? By what criteria? Because that's not covered. That's only the select few get to know that material. And so what we're trying to do is say, no, no, no. It's got to be more than the select few who get to know that material. It's got to be like all of us. We all need to know this material. It can't be something you hide under a bush. So it has to be out there for us to to boldly and fearlessly recognize and say, this is a legitimate concern that must be addressed. And it hasn't been to date. And there's been no clarifying data until we started, well, clarifying it, which is what we did in our fellowship. And so it's like, okay, this makes sense. And you and I have had some nice chats about it. And there's just a lot of material there. Yeah, when it when it comes to this broken pattern now, I think it's helpful for me to understand how it's like not genuinely they're not they're not like fully occupying or like going over to the left side, right? There, this is a quote unquote broken pattern. I figure that's why you call it that. So there are other things going on, and it's it, the left AIC pattern is this sort of origination, right? This is like built on top of that mm-hmm. for people. So it's a gradient, right? So there can be varying degrees of this. So when it comes to this truly broken pattern, are these people truly in like left AFIR as we would refer to it? Or is nope. it something different? Yes. They're not in left AFIR. They're still in right AFIR. Mm-hmm. And they rotated entire pelvis to the left while in right AFIR. Mm-hmm. So that, that begs the question, like who gets this? Because like, who are people that are most likely to rotate their entire pelvis to the left while still in right AFIR? Well, I mean, so if we think about it, okay, well, people who do a lot of rotating, right? That would be fair. Oh, you mean like somebody who golfs? Yeah, that could be one of them. Somebody who maybe picks up a round ball that's kind of white and has red stitches in it, and they put a glove on this hand and they throw it real fast. Yeah, it could be those guys. Could it be someone who has a racket in their hand and throws a ball that's kind of yellow and smacks it across? Yeah, over a net. Yeah, it could be those guys. So I would think people like that could be first in line to get this problem. And I think everybody struggles to be one of those. And some people die before they ever get there. And others successfully get there really quick in life. And then I think there are factors somewhere in between that. You know, there could be some secretary out there who does this sort of movement or has found a way to fake occupancy of the left hemisphere. You notice I don't even say left stance anymore. Yeah. It's just, I, I, I cringe at the words, right stance, left stance. That is so gate. And this is so beyond gate. This is literally neuropulmonary hemispheric occupancy. Yep. And it's like that, that's chamber compression, all of that stuff that you've heard before. 
it's and it's just a different i mean if you want to say gate yeah it's fine you say gate i mean just for the sake of conversation i'm not like i'm gonna call somebody out you said gate no i don't <laughs> care say gate it's just that it's not it's beyond gate i mean we all say breathing is walking i get it but it's beyond gate it's about literally occupying a hemisphere being able to get there stay there and leave there that's occupancy that's where i'm trying to shift my own perspective because i find gate is helpful as a lens to get the basics down and understand yes. the general biomechanics behind it but once you get beyond that you start to get into things like okay this is probably a good time to bring up this hope test that um through your course which is phenomenal by the way um a lot of people Thank that you. have a familiarity with with the PRI concepts or asymmetry, I highly recommend it. It's absolutely outstanding. So uh, the, this hope test is one thing I really took away from it. And it's basically um, a, a slightly different way of carrying out an adduction lift test, right? Oh, but yeah. it's, it's but there are some other things in it that uh, hopefully you can speak on that are a little bit different that relate to how we like truly occupy a hemisphere. And what's really cool about this test is like in the past, there's, there's certain like movement tests where it's like, you shouldn't necessarily just try to train to pass that test. But with this test, it kind of is like that in a sense, because what you're doing in that test is literally what you want to be doing when you're standing up and moving through the gate cycle. So literally training yeah. someone to pass that test is, and a lot of the exercises really do look like the test. You actually get people to feel just so much better. And I've gotten, I can't say enough good things about how much that test has helped. I, you know, it, it, I got to tell you, and I, it just warms me to hear you say that, you know, you know, we're all like in our own little laboratories across the country and around the world trying to apply what we do and, you know, and apply what we've learned. And as we're doing it, you know, you learn things from other people. It's like, I want to look over your shoulder and cheat off your paper a little bit because you got some good stuff going on there. And so here I am alone in my little world and James is alone in his little world and we're collaborating as best we can, but we're listening, you know, and people are telling us things and we start applying this and trying to make sense of it. there we are again you know writing down things and just trying to make sense of it and um so it, it, one of the things that that i find the most fascinating you know when you think about an adduction lift test it the entire nomenclature of the test i suppose it would apply if that's what you were doing if you're doing an adduction lift test then it's a perfect test except when you really understand the mechanics and the, and the neurology behind the exam, uh, nothing adducts. Why are we calling it? And for that matter, why is there an abduction lift test? There doesn't need to be because it should all be taken care of by the concept of neurology called hemispheric occupation. Mm -hmm. That's why we changed the name because nothing, it, the only thing about it that resembles an adduction lift test is the position of a person's leg on your shoulder. That's where the similarity begins and that's where it ends because every movement from zero up to five is applied differently and understood differently through a completely different lens that simplifies the process by mountains. Once you understand it, it, it and all of a sudden you start, and I've heard it so many times, Connor, like what you said a minute ago about like when I started applying this and just start trying to improve people's score all of a sudden they're going, dude, why do I feel so much better? Mm -hmm. And you're going, right? 
and, and it's like this light bulb moment and you and it's crystal clarity and i've seen so many times as i've traveled the country like you know you're on this crusade and you're in clinics and we're going over lift testing and they'll start the test and they'll go well this person's at least a one and i'm like are they mm-hmm. because the minute i look i'm like they're not a one and you and i both know as we were going through the coursework what it took to be a one on an adduction lift test is nothing. But what it takes to be a one on a hemispheric occupational performance eval or hope is something. It's humbling. It, oh my gosh. And so the, the one they got on an adduction lift test is far and away a zero on a hope. Because when you score on a hope, you realize immediately there's no control for the frontal plane that takes an adduction lift test does not account for the front frontal plane and barely accounts for the transverse. So if you can't yet, and I'll interrupt myself, yet treatment paradigms following an adduction lift test emphasize frontal plane control. Why are we not examining it? I mean, we're literally asking a patient to FAER, the lower extremity. And we're literally thinking we're examining one thing when we're absolutely examining the wrong structure with that one that we just scored them. We can scored you, a one. Can you, yeah. can you expand upon that? Why it's not actually that? Sure. So if we're, if we're scoring a one on an adduction lift test, we think we're scoring the pelvic floor. It's what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. However, the position itself demands that we're literally not testing the pelvic floor and that we're actually testing the psoas. And I'll leave it there, but um, because I, I want people to, to, to begin to, to rock back a little bit on their heels and go, hmm, okay, I, 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 I want to know more about that. I want to dive deeper into that because so many times, the minute you get a patient to a one, if you do it with the correct criteria controlling for triplanar positioning, suddenly they report reduction of symptoms. Oh, well, this is interesting, Mike. You know, the, the vulvodynia that I was diagnosed with and, and plagues me night and day reduces the minute I control for this position. Yes. And not only that, we can explain why. And so the patient then gets it and they understand now the correlation between the frontal plane control of a pelvis and the frontal plane control of a neck, which we outline in the test when we're correlating the two. Mm-hmm. So that's why, first of all, there's no adduction that takes place in an adduction lift test. Nothing. And if somebody says the right lower extremity adducts, I'll say, you just buried them in the wrong pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to go, how in the world? Well, you know, that's what we talk about. It's not, a lot of people look at those tests um, and they'll say like, even if they don't know what the hope is, which is like, they're, they're minor adjustments. Like it's not anything like groundbreaking sure. in terms of like- Minor adjustment. Yeah, it's-, it's Common it's, sense. Yes, yes. No, really, really. <laughs> there was, yeah, there, there, there's some things that I was just like, yeah, I always kind of thought that that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I didn't like, who am I to say that, you know, people that have been right. practicing this for 30 years, I'm just some, you know, dude that has a gym, like what, you know, so I never really like guessed it. Cause I second guess it. Cause I was like, these, this is probably right. Um, but now that I see these adjustments, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that kind of makes way more sense. But anyway, like people look at these tests and they get 
sort of overwhelmed by them and like they get anxious about the idea of carrying out this seemingly very nuanced and complex test and yeah maybe at first it can be a little bit to like practice and get down but like once you actually get it it's really really easy and it doesn't take a ton of time to get that down it's super easy i love what you said about it being common sense it is common sense and it's very practical and you know, i think the hardest part is is understanding the you know the scores of three four five and frontal plane control therein and loss of neutrality when you swap sides and you know i mean i learned you know why am i testing the other side anyway i mean you know yeah. i've had literally seasoned pri therapists say wait a minute you're testing for neutrality after you test a lift test i'm like you kind of have to yeah if you take it and extrapolate all the way to the end this patient's going to alternate hopefully they can do it well if they can't it needs to be sussed out in an exam what's the only dynamic test we really have it was that and it was faulty so rats we need to clean that up now let's apply a little common sense to it the hardest part about that that goes beyond the common sense is understanding okay how do i create an ability to alternate and when we started clarifying frontal plane control of a glute max that opened up the world because mm -hmm. that's a concept that is completely not understood and not covered anywhere and that's where the rubber met, met the road down at the low scores and up at the high scores can you expand on the the frontal plane glute max like why that is so important for opening of the outlet, like in one sentence, opening of the outlet. And otherwise it's, you know, it, it will end up sausage making. So it's like, we'll just be in the, you know, inside baseball discussions and all this stuff. It's just easier. Yeah. It's like slide one through 96 talks about it. It's like, let's break out the slideshow, you know? And it's like, yeah. oh, but yeah, pretty much it's, it's, it's opening of the outlet. We can yeah. open the outlet. Yeah, I, I found it was really important for understanding how we get into a side and load that side and be able mm -hmm. to use that specific portion of the glute max to facilitate the outlet control getting out of it. That was was that was like, oh, yeah, like that thing is actually going to help us you use the words preload, which is really important for like getting over to the side, having those fibers work to then help us secure get out of that side. That was that's what really clicked for me. Yeah, and and, and I stole that from James. James is the one he's like, Mike, it's a preload. We're preloading. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm like, that makes sense. You know, and then he starts, you know, searching the literature, looking for concepts about it and it's there. So anyway, so it's kind of neat to, for him to come up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, but in terms of the hope score, I think that's really important. I was actually going to ask you about the abduction lift test. So you don't think that's necessary given what the hope score is trying to go after. Not at all. Yeah, because if you account for positioning, you're doing an abduction lift test. Mm -hmm. see, the abduction lift test calls for abduction of the right lower extremity. That's why it's named that way. The adduction lift test calls for adduction of the right lower extremity. So adduction of the right lower extremity never happens in a hope or in an adduction lift test if it's done correctly, which it's not taught correctly. So how could it be done correctly? So I used to teach it, I know. So what is what is happening on both AB and AD is AB. Mm -hmm. And that's what's not understood. And so it's like, wrap your head around that. I need to move a sacrum in the opposite direction 
when I'm ostensibly adducting on an adduction lift test. The sacrum should be moving in the opposite direction. And if I'm adducting a femur, my sacrum just went the wrong way. That's a hard concept. And I guarantee you, the emperor knows he's not wearing any clothes. So and what I mean by that is people are out there doing that. And just like you, you're kind of going, well, you know, I'm a new guy, whatever. Maybe, you know, they got to know what they're talking about. It, it would that you would have called it out back then. Wait a minute. I'm not sure I understand this. Yeah. Because it would have begged some thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It would have forced some thinking. Well, there are plenty of seasoned PRI therapists out there who want to raise their hand too. That's what I mean by the emperor's not wearing any clothes because they've got to realize that there's an inherent flaw within the test that has to be examined. This is what moves science forward. It's what moves us in the right direction. We can't stagnate in one spot and simply talk about neurology and talk about neurology. Mm-hmm. We've got to discuss neurology and move linearly. We have to progress forward and 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 then learn from our own mistakes. You know, it, it, you, you treat cancer and in, in the process of treating cancer, unfortunately, there's a few dead bodies on the side of the road. But it's like, okay, well, the lady who died from breast cancer in 1969 wouldn't die today because they learned from the lady who died in 69. Mm-hmm. So now in 2022, it's a different proposition altogether. They're going to survive. The survivability went way up because we learned from the science. What if we were doing the same stuff as back in 1969? We didn't learn from our mistakes. So if I'm if I'm following myself or somebody else into a rabbit hole that says everybody is this pattern and everybody is tested this way and everybody must be retrofitted into the pattern, I have to pretend I don't see the deviations from that. And if I pretend I don't see it, now the emperor has no clothes and nobody's calling it out. So we have to call it out and we have to point it out and then boldly, fearlessly learn. And that's what I'm saying. And I do not profess to have the answers. What I do profess to is I'm going to keep trying to find the answers and simplify the concept because that's what James and I are all about. That's the stupid logos about. It's figuring out those concepts and, and, and listening. So, you know, teach with one mouth but but learn with two ears and you know you better have bigger ears than a mouth we're really trying our hardest to listen to what people say you know i mean uh pat davidson's out there and he's talking about rethinking the big patterns well dang gum it he's right we need to be rethinking big patterns we need to really rethink little patterns we need to rethink everything because we're all going to advance we're you know again i'm cheating off your paper color I mean, that's just the way it is. That brings me to a point about um, trainers. And you have a very specific niche. It's people that have a certain awareness of these concepts, and then they want to get more into them. And they want to get a little bit more of the integration component of things. But, you know, myself, I'm a trainer. I'm not a physical therapist. I'm not a massage therapist. Like, I have certain limitations of what I can do. And a struggle for me, even to this day, is getting people to understand how trainers can benefit from these concepts that we talk about and why it's so incredibly valuable. So could you maybe speak on like why this is important for your average personal trainer to know and why, yes, this stuff seems overwhelming and complex on the surface level, but once you start to get an understanding of this stuff, it starts to really make a difference. 
So what, what are, what would you say to the trainer that would be listening and be like, this sounds like way too much for me my clients are in pain and all that, but like, damn, there's gotta be an easier way. <laughs> so first, let me just say this. And I say this every time I enter a training room, any place, whether it's like in some college or some major league thing or whatever, or, or somebody's own, you know, like uh, boutique gym, it doesn't matter. And I say this every time you guys have it the hardest mm -hmm. because like for, for some joker like me, the patients already walk They're a, the keyword. They're a patient. You guys have clients. And so it's completely different because your client may or may not be in pain and they may be moving, you know, I'm fine. You know, and the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Now, with that in mind, you know, especially like in, 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 in professional sports. So these guys are trying to help this athlete not be injured. Okay, they've got the athletes that are injured, fine. But they're also trying to have these athletes who aren't injured not be injured. Now, these are young guys getting paid lots of money who are invincible. How are you going to help me, dude? Yeah. You know, that's their attitude. No, it and, is, for sure. And they have to cajole them and, and, and like spoiled children, convince them to do a little bit of something, no matter what it is. Maybe it's the stuff that we understand. Maybe it's something else. But no matter what it is, they've got to cajole this little athlete to get it off of this prima donna horse and actually do a little bit of something to prolong their career. Let that athlete get injured a few times and now you got their attention, but pre-injury, you know, it's, it's fruitless for them. They can't make any sort of progress. It's hard. So that's the first thing I say. The second gratuitous thing I say is, and it kind of doubles down on the first is that in that sort of a trench and in that sort of a niche, it's always a challenge. So you've got, you know, it's it's the it's the rough job of convincing someone that they need to do some work that could help them not be in pain if they happen to have pain but Connor Harris is not going to convince that guy you know or whatever he just wants to come in there and work out and he wants to get buff and he wants to stay in shape you know blah 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 so there's that um but you also said something else that I think is 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 kind of key first of all First of all, understanding human anatomy and understanding human kinetics is, is hard. It's, it's just hard. Okay, so it, so is figuring out how to fix my stupid tractors. You know, those things are hard and I'm no good at it. So I have to take it to somebody to let them fix it. I can tinker, but, you know, I, I, they say, oh, I just turn wrenches. And I'm like, well, you turn them better than I do. But anyway... So we, we have to, uh, we meaning you and I, forget PT and forget owning a gym. You and I are in the same realm in that we have a curiosity. We want to learn this material and it's hard. And the old cliche, well, if it was easy, everybody do it. There's a reason why you have a lot of people who happen to listen to what you say. And the reason why is because you've endeavored to learn material, not just this, but a lot of material. So you're endeavoring to learn the material and that's kind of making you cream and you're rising to the top. Like a lot of people, not all of us, you know, plenty of us are creamish, but not everybody is cream. And so, you know, you're going to rise. Other people are going to rise and other people want to emulate that. 
So they're going to ask you questions and they're going to want to learn, right? I sound like a philosopher right now, and I don't mean to. What I mean by that is that you have taken the time to learn the material and it is hard. So for you, you're going to have different outcomes than somebody else who isn't willing to learn the material. The outcomes, the successes, whether they're patients or clients in your world, because you're seeing patients too, let's face it. So those injured individuals who were clients who are now migrating into patient status, you'd still like to try to get them managed. And if, if it's just like me, if it's starting to fall out of my scope, I phone a friend and you're doing the same thing. We're all doing the same thing if we're decent. So anyway, so your, your clients and your patients are being managed by you and you're achieving something because you endeavored to learn the material. So you intuitively know the power. So you're then trying to communicate that to those to other individuals who might be listening to this broadcast. So now, having said all of that, my message to them is almost virtually the same with some nuances. And that is first, A, don't ever stop learning. Don't get complacent in the pattern that you're in because you will, first of all, you won't become cream. Second of all, you'll not gain clients by trying to get more people in your gym. You'll gain clients by trying to get people as independently moving and functioning as they can. And if they're patients, getting them to be not patients anymore and letting them be clients again, because that's going to have people driving other people to you because you've taken the time to learn. Success breeds growth. Hoarding never breeds growth and not learning doesn't breed success. So, so if, if not learning breeds failure. So back to the point what I would say is don't stop learning this material because application of it in the, in, the, in the gym setting, in the strength and conditioning setting is, is crucial. If nothing else, it's not like every exercise, good Lord, has to be with this on your mind in the backdrop. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. I mean, where is it? Where do we ever think about hemispheric occupation when I'm swinging a stupid golf club? I don't. Or, or when I'm throwing that baseball or when I'm hitting the tennis ball or when I'm doing a, a loaded squat or bench pressing or lunging, whatever. I'm not thinking about that and I shouldn't have to think about it. What I should think about is how do I make sure I can get away with that? without hurting and who's going to be around to help me sweep up the mess when I get in trouble. And is it going to be Connor? I hope like hell it is. And then if he can't do it, does he already have his fail safe, his line of communication? Because if he does, I respect him all the more. And so for that, that trainer, what I want them to understand is, is, is that you don't have to apply these principles in every silly exercise. It's just yep. not necessary. Yep. And all it'll do is make patients, excuse me, clients become patients. They're going to injure themselves. It's not meant for that. It's meant for you as a learner to understand dynamics of movement, to tweak their programs, to keep them out of hot water and to grow them. Boy, that was long-winded. No, that was okay. awesome. That was awesome. I, I'll answer my own question because I, I am a trainer and I think it's important for uh, people to understand that when you make, like anyone can get someone more fit, right? And yes. That's, that's not that hard. But when you 
hear someone tell you that they could go run a mile for the first time in five years without pain. Or when you hear someone say that they were able to play with their kids without pain, or you, you hear someone say they were able to, you know, pull their PR deadlift without pain. Like that is like the biggest dopamine rush, like in history to, to, to make an impact on someone's life is just so I can't even, I can't even describe how rewarding it is. And not only that, like that's, that's primary secondary to that people are going to want to spread the word. And I never have to fight for clients. I never have to worry about it ever because, well, I think my social media presence helps in the sense that like people find me there and all that, but just by word of mouth, I would never have to worry about getting another client because it makes such a difference on that person's life. And I think that's where the real value, both in terms of just our own ability to impact other people's lives and our own financial benefit. Like it, this stuff makes that difference. At least it does. It, for me. It's not a zero sum game. Yeah. You know, the more you financially benefit, the more people's lives you can impact and the more they have an opportunity to improve their lot so that they can financially benefit. And then they impact other people's lives. This to me is like, it, it's, it's always been that way. Endeavor to learn, and you'll, you'll end up succeeding. Broaden your brain, you'll end up succeeding. Grow yourself and you'll grow your community. Good Lord, we're getting philosophical. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's so true. And that's what we need to wrap our heads around. So I loved hearing what you just said. And folks can do well to, to you know, you don't, a person doesn't have to have this massive social media presence to be a powerhouse wherever they are. You know, I've got a friend of mine who works in Houston, Texas, James Guzman. He's a physical therapy assistant and he's going back to school. Talk about a non-traditional student. He's going to get his, his doctorate. Now he wants to be a PT. So he's in the middle of that program. When he's not there, we keep him covered in patients and he stays pretty busy. But anyway, so it's really irritating us that he's gone a lot to classes. So he, Guzman, you know, he's, he says, you know, I, it's not, I don't need to conquer the world. I just want to be really, really good right here where I live. And I'm like, dude, it, that's it. That's it. And the, the, the gooder you are, the more folks are going to come. That's just the way it is. And people are not idiots. They, they figure out who's decent and who's not. And they're going to gravitate to decent. Duh. Amen. Hey, yeah. uh, really quick, before we wrap up here, I was wondering if you could do a little rapid fire Q&A. I tend to like to do this. Um, sure, sure, I'll try. Sure. Um, there's a couple of questions that we got and uh, you can just answer them quickly. Uh, you don't have to go into a ton of detail, but uh, I'll, no, I'll them off to you. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Thoughts on programming PRI for a power lifter. Will breathing drills be enough to make a change? Ooh, that's a spicy one. Breathing drills can be enough to make a change. So it's kind of almost a simple question because breathing obviously can make a change. The question is really, how much change can I get from, from doing the breathing? How much change can I get by teaching people breathing? You have to first look at them and understand what kind of a pattern do they have right now? Are they a chronic hyperventilator? Are they a chronic hyperinflator? If that's the case, teach them to exhale. Teach them how to control and, and maximize chamber position before they pull or push or load. And if you can do that, so the short answer is yes, Breathing can affect their program. Training on breathing always affects a program. So it's a slam dunk. Do you think a left adductor pullback is enough to get that person to 
reposition their left hip in a meaningful way that can affect their 500 pound squat? An adductor pullback is a meaningful way to reposition a hip, but to improve that 500 pound squat, I don't think so. What about I think squat without pain or change the way that that pelvis moves under that 500? Yes. Load. I agree. So but there would there disagree was, with you. Yeah. I'm sure, and I love, I welcome the disagreement. Well, there was a bit of a feed problem on the um, on the Wi-Fi or something. So the very last thing you said prior that I didn't catch. So say that once more. So the question is, and this is like a, a hot topic, is if you do a left adductor pullback, and that's what that person needs to squat, reposition their pelvis so that when they're going to the gait cycle, that helps them feel better, blah, blah, blah. Does that carry over to a 500 pound squat or a high percentage of their one rep max squat in a meaningful way that will help them still achieve that, that same outcome of less pain or moving their pelvis in the way that that adductor pullback allows them to do under that stressful load? I think it can, certainly it can. So there are other ways as well. For example, I had a, a awesome IFBB pro bodybuilder with knee pain. And what I had him doing, especially when he was doing legs. So he's like, I had to lighten it up to like four sets, five sets of 20 with 405, because it was, you know, it was giving me knee pain if I went up any heavier than that. So in his case, rather than an adductor pullback, I had him assume a full squat position, heels down, you know, sort of an Asian type squat. Hold, hang on to the power rack, breathe into your back for several repetitions, then do your set. And for him, that was enough. No knee pain. Yeah. Eight out of 10, zero out of 10. He said, you mean to tell me all I have to do is this? And I was like, for you, yeah. Yeah. People will say, though, that the load is not meaningful or specific enough to carry over to that task. And I disagree with that because I've seen time and time again, people like there was a, there was a power lifter that um, I've known for a while deadlifted left hip totally went out. Couldn't even walk. Literally the only variable that changed was we added in something that his left hip needed that people would look at and say, that's a corrective exercise. He was able to walk, able to deadlift a week later. And well, I would have no doubt, yeah, you know, most, most power lifters, if you lay them on their side and let's say you were about to do an adduction drop test, you can't even shift their pelvis forward to bring the left leg back. I call them kangaroos. Their pelvis doesn't move and their legs don't move independently. Kangaroos can't either. Both legs move at the same time. The minute you teach someone that they've got two halves to a pelvis, no matter what you do, and a pullback is a beautiful way to do that. The minute they realize they've got two halves, you're going to improve. So the short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So anyway, what's the next one? I'm glad you could speak on that. Uh, okay, let's see. What would be, uh, this is interesting, uh, a reasoning behind a posterior tibialis tendon issue with someone that has a regular or high arch? Okay, well, first we have to understand what posterior tibialis does. So posterior, posterior tibialis supinates the foot. Let's assume my hand is a right foot. Mm -hmm. Posterior tibialis attaches to the navicular and pull. This is the inside of the foot, outside of the foot. It pulls the foot up or slows the descent of the foot into pronation. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So when you make initial contact, you make initial contact on the slightly outer edge of the heel to center of the heel right here, which is a slightly supinated foot. But then you roll the foot flat. As you roll to foot flat, the tibialis posterior slows your roll. Now, at that point, as your pelvis moves through, your foot is designed to resupinate, which locks the mid-tarsal joints and gives the navicular a solid positioning for the tibialis posterior to resupinate the foot for push-off. So if the foot is continuing to pronate, now the tibialis posterior is pulling on a loose navicular. And so the tibialis posterior has to work twice as hard to resupinate the foot and now gets overused and gets tibialis posterior tendonitis or shin splint, sometimes to the point that the bone fragments, right? It peels loose. So that's the mechanism of the injury. Now you have to get into why is the foot continuing to pronate when it's supposed to supinate? That opens up a big can. Mm -hmm. So because that could be neuro, it could be ortho, it could be any of both. It could be respiratory, could be all of the above. So if that's, you know, whatever the case is, we know that mechanically the tibialis posterior is pulling on an avicular that's moving when it shouldn't be. That's causing it to overwork. So if we can dampen that, we'll dampen the tibialis posterior tendonitis or the shin, so the posterior medial shin splint. That was all. Okay. Next one. That was fun. That was a good one. Okay. This is long. Um, I know what this person is asking though. Okay. So when you're going after getting a zone of apposition, ribs down, to what extent is it okay to push someone? Like, how do you differentiate between putting someone in a bunch of flexion, like, you know, a wall support reach, like just a ton of thoracic flexion, lumbar flexion, just trying to drive those ribs down. You're getting a ton of six pack, all that stuff versus getting more of that sort of genuine tilt through the obliques, the hamstrings. Is there a point at which you're going to push someone into a lot of flexion or are you going to try to get that zone through less aggressive means, if that makes sense. Always, always try to get the zone with the least aggressive means possible mm -hmm. because the harder a person tries to work to get the zone, the more they're going to bring on the allies that aren't supposed to be involved, like the neck or something else. That's the short answer. I know for a fact, I know personally, someone, a therapist who was going to manually assist someone to get a zone. And she got too aggressive and broke some ribs. Oof. You can't be breaking ribs on people. That's not a good treatment strategy. It's not optimal. So, you know, I guess what I'm driving at is the whole reason we even do manual work is just to let people feel what it feels like for ribs to exhale. One nice thing to do is say, hey, look, I just guided your ribs down a little bit, not even hard. Can you keep them down while I let go? And they discover what they can't do, or they discover they can do it, but they can't breathe because if they try to inhale and the ribs pop up, they can't automatically keep their ribs down and inhale. They're like, is that possible? And you're like, yeah, it's possible. Not only is it possible, it's a must. So you have to be able to control your abdominal, abdominal walls. The only time they're quiet is when you're seated and breathing quietly. And that's why belly breathing when you're seated quietly is legal. So we always hear belly breathe, belly breathe, belly breathe. And I would be like, yeah, no. So belly breathing is fine, but that's, nor that's not normal respiration unless you're seated and you're quietly breathing. So at that point, your abs are off. They better be. 
even then there's probably some low-grade abdominal activity. However, when you're upright or moving or doing, you better have low-grade abdominal activity, but most people cannot. So consequently, they have to extend to en enable themselves to leverage their rib cage with their neck to lift it. So now they're, 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 they're down that paradoxical rabbit hole of, of poor respiration. The short answer is the less work it takes for someone to dome that diaphragm, the better. So all I need is a slight abdominal contraction. When I say abdominal, I mean obliques. I don't mean rectus. Yep. Rectus is a, it, it's a big nemesis for all of us. Everybody's got a rectus. Give me obliques or give me death. Amen. What are some reasons people think that going right in a, I think we actually already addressed that. Let's see if there's another one here. Um, what should someone do if they need manual therapy, but don't have a PRI manual therapist? Accessible, I'm guessing. Yeah. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I don't know. Beam, have someone beam over. I don't know. Do what? <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that is actually, that is, that's a good question though, because that's something that I've, if people message me are like, Hey, can I work with you? Like I, you might need manual therapy. There's no one around their area. Like that's tough. Right. What I would, I think if I was in that situation, let's say I wasn't licensed to touch a patient. Here's what I know. A client. What I know is that most of the time I don't have to do manual work on patients most of the time. So that means I've taught them how to understand what rib internal rotation is about. One thing that I do really simple, I'm going to move my screen. I'll take my fingers and jab them in the belly. And I'll say, now push me out like that. And they can't. I say cough. They cough and their, their obliques engage and it pushes my hand out. And I'm like, great, keep me out while you inhale. Mm. And they can't. Now that's that's not manual therapy. That's just poking somebody in the belly with your hand. If somebody wants to construe that as manual therapy, show me where it's taught in any manual, and then I'll buy it that's manual therapy. That's just a nice little trick that lets a person figure out how to engage their abdominals. And then if they're having a struggle with that, you can give them an activity like a side plank or something that looks like that where they're forced to engage their abdominals and say, now breathe in that position. Mm -hmm. you've just done manual therapy that's a quick fix beautiful i love that yes i blink love that stuff cool yeah especially with the, your hips and knees bent so your back is automatically rounded yes. dude it's money Piece of cake. in the pri world i think that's sideline integration 67 do you know what cci is i know they make some really good primers for for shotgun shells that's all i know they, this question is cci from a pri perspective i have no idea what they mean i don't know CCI. Yeah, well, that was the last one. Cool, Mike. Well, shut. Sure. This was awesome. Sorry about the CCI one. I don't Maybe know that, either. I'll write you something and clarify it. We can do it via text or something. You can answer it later. Sounds good. Cool, Mike. Thanks for your time, man. This was awesome. Super Thank informative. You. This was really, really fun. I had a lot of fun too. Thanks a lot. Take care. God bless you. See you later.